Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Def Beef, an NFT artist who creates generative audiovisual art completely on the blockchain. So welcome, welcome to the show, Tyler. Thank you for having me. Pleasure's all mine. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you because I've been following your work uh, ever since I started getting interested in in NFTs, and it's some of the coolest and most kind of out there stuff that I've seen in in the space. So I'm really excited to learn more about it. But before we start getting into your NFT work, I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about your your own background and sort of what you did before you got uh, interested in making the kind of work that you're doing right now. Sure. So how, how I came to be a uh, generative audiovisual artist in the NFT space is it's kind of a long story. And so I could I could kind of give some I've worn a lot of different hats in my life. I can maybe give a brief summary of some of the things that kind of came to this point. Um, so I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I had a strong interest in computers from a young age, and I was particularly fascinated in a class of computer games called roguelike computer games based on on the uh, uh, 1979 or 1980 uh, game Rogue, which is a dungeon crawler type of game where uh, it uses just terminal ASCII uh, aesthetic. But the interesting thing about it is that the the uh, content is procedurally uh, generated. So it's different every time you play the level. And I thought as a kid that that was just fascinating and it was a formative experience. And that spurred my interest to learn to program and to play with generative processes. Um, I had a strong interest in music. And so I studied classical piano growing up and later uh, got deep into uh, electric guitar when I was a teenager, uh, technical electric guitar. I was really into uh, artists like Joe Satriani and Steve Vai, Jimi Hendrix. And so uh, later I went to, I studied computer engineering at the University of Waterloo, but I, I dropped out pretty soon after, after about a year, uh, after becoming obsessed with the music of, of Frank Zappa. And uh, that inspired me to, that I needed to do, you know, instead of just studying computer engineering, to do something with sound and music. And so I moved to Toronto and, and tried to run a, a music recording studio. And I did that for a few years, uh, playing in different bands, recording a lot of bands. I think I recorded over 300 or 400 bands in my warehouse studio and uh, realized that I was I was more interested in music technology. Uh, and I guess somewhat naively, I decided to return to study electrical engineering at the University of Toronto in an effort to learn as much as I could about electronics and mathematics and, and physics of sound. Um, so I didn't really quite find what I was looking for creatively in that experience. Um, but, uh, but I definitely learned a lot and it was really foundational knowledge that came up later. And I also ended up at the University of Toronto from, uh, in, in grad school, I ended up in the computer graphics and animation field, uh, in the CS department, specifically working with, uh, simulating physical systems to animate natural phenomena. So I, I developed a novel method, uh, of, uh, fluid simulation. Uh, so, um, things like water and, and gases and liquids and, uh, a smoke. And I published a paper about that at, uh, at SIGGRAPH. Um, and then subsequently, I dropped out of the PhD program to pursue other creative endeavors. And so from then, I've done various things. At that point, I got married and, and had kids. And so kind of went under the radar. And for the past maybe 10 years, I feel like I've been living a little bit under a rock. In that time, I've done a, a bunch of things. I, I developed an interest in metalworking and blacksmithing that I did initially as a hobby, but that eventually turned into uh, a full-time business making forged uh, jewelry. So men's wedding bands uh, made out of alternative materials like titanium and stainless steel. Uh, so that's what I've been doing full-time for the last three or four years. Around the time of the of the pandemic, it was, it was really difficult with time constraints with two young kids and uh, everybody being at home and, and trying to work. And so I was feeling a lack of agency not being able to have my kind of me time for a creative outlet. And so I started, for whatever reason, I decided that uh, that I was going to spend as a little rebellion, steal a few hours in the evening and and uh, and try to work on something creative. And um, I chose to try to 
do sound synthesis using minimal a minimal tool set. So what I discovered that at that time modular synthesizers had come back into style over the like during the time that I was living under this rock, these things these things happening. And so I developed this art practice of writing computer code to implement automated systems that synthesize and generate uh, sound and animation. And I use these these systems as tools to explore um, aesthetic possibilities. So this is this is broadly known as as generative art. Um, but a key aspect of my particular practice is that I've I've intentionally chosen a very basic tool set that is that is fundamental. You could even say primitive. So I use I use just an old an old laptop in uh, in a very conservative programming language. Uh, this called C language, and this this language hasn't changed in in decades, and yet it remains widely supported uh, due to its due to its essential its essential nature. And so it's pretty tedious working this way, but there's several reasons that I intentionally chose to work this way. The the number one reason being trying to avoid the moving target of the rapid pace of change of, of media production tools and technology. So my desire is that I want my tools to remain constant so that I can focus on, on, uh, on honing myself and my craft at my own pace, even when my personal time is fragmented or includes uh, like prolonged breaks, like sometimes of several years, right? Like having kids and not knowing when I will have like hobby time to work on these things, being able to come back to it and not having to spend, you know, time and, and invest the time to to upgrade your 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 operating system or your your software setting to get into a state where you can work again. Um, I connect this back to the blacksmithing because, uh, like, you know, after a second kid was born, I wasn't able to blacksmith for a year. But when I came back to it a year later, I went into my garage and everything was just as it was. I didn't have to reboot my anvil. It was it was there and ready to go, and so I wanted that same process for what I was doing because I didn't know over what time scale it was going to uh, to play out. Uh, so I chose this minimal tool set as as a way to um, to give myself that opportunity. And so I, the second reason that that I work is because I want to maintain an intimate relationship with the with the underlying medium. Um, so I conceive of my process as directly manipulating raw digital information, um, sequences of numbers. That correspond to perceptual signals, um, either sonically or visually. Um, in my past experience with engineering and music technology, as well as ongoing experience doing this, it aids me in understanding that mapping between signal representations and their perception. In contrast, off-the-shelf systems, they must necessarily work at a higher level of abstraction to benefit uh, less technical users or, or time-sensitive commercial use cases. And this kind of imposes or encourages uh, certain forms or processes, but limits or inconveniences others. And so making one's own tools, it's more tedious, it's more prone to error, and it's riskier, but ultimately it allows a greater chance for, for, uh, for a unique, at least a unique expression. So I understand when I'm, when I'm doing this that I'm reinventing the wheel, and uh, I could easily like take pieces and, you know, uh, the, from off the shelf systems or open source or whatever and use them. But, but that's not what I want to do. Like I want, I want to reinvent the wheel for an exploratory, uh, 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 journey and to question what I, what I think, what I thought that I know or that I don't know. And in the process, knowing that I'm going to come up with something, there's going to be some output and that output, um, will be unique. Even though my systems might not be as good, they might be broken in some way, not as efficient. Um, you know, the, the ranges have not been pre predefined. Uh, when you use a synth or you use a plugin or so, like, you know, or, gra or a plugin in Adobe or something, there's been a designer that's set the ranges of that plugin. It goes from zero to 10, right? And because you want that range to look acceptable, they're not going to ship a product. And, and, and then when you turn it up to 10, it just goes absolutely ballistic. And, and then you have some unusable output. But I want to have that opportunity, right? That's the whole thing. So, you know, for people who know Spinal Tap, right, I want to be able to turn it to 11. Right? And so if you can set your own parameter space um, and, and allow it to break, you have it's riskier, but you have you have the opportunity that that it will be in some way unique and maybe unique to your own personal expression. Yeah. Watching a lot of your or looking at a lot of your work, I get the impression that in some ways you're kind of asking what the machine or what 
the system can do that it wasn't designed to do and that people didn't expect it to do? Yeah, there's kind of a medium kind of specificity to it because uh, depending on the tools that you choose, it's going to push you in certain directions. It's not that you couldn't make anything with any tool because maybe you could, but it's going to be easier to make some things rather than others. And so it's going to push you in in those directions. And so if everybody chooses the same off-the-shelf tools, if you don't make a very intentional uh, decision to use it in a certain way, then you might fall into the same kind of uh, grooves that uh, that just naturally occur. Um, and so uh, like adopting my, my interface to the, to the computer is through typing, right? So my process is, is like this. I, I write code. I run it. It's not in real time. Okay, I run it. Then it gives me an output. And I see that. And then I go back. And I, and I make changes to the code and then I iterate. Now, this is different than when you're using like a, like a, a synth or some real time process where you're twisting knobs and things are happening in real time. It's a non real time process. And I do that intentionally because it gives me time to consider. I think that it, I find myself thinking more about, uh, like compositional and structural aspects instead of, you know, just twiddling presets and then, and then hearing the sounds immediately. Maybe people that are, that are into sense would understand this, but you find yourself a lot of times you're just kind of uh, you're just kind of twiddling things, and you don't ever get to to making some type of um, like higher higher structure. And so uh, I find that working in this way it forces me to think about about that structure and about okay, what how do I want things to change over time, and like how how is that going to play out? And 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 writing it in code is is uh, is it's just a different sort of paradigm. Than, uh, than like improvising it on the spot or, 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 or other things. Um, and the use of, of, of code constructs like repetition and looping and, uh, these things will, will naturally, will, will give rise to structures that you otherwise wouldn't really have considered. And so you just kind of put it in there and see what the computer spits out and then select from those things, right? You're, you're giving yourself these options. You're leveraging computation to, uh, to, for the computer to be able to present to you many, many different options. And then the artist part in it is, is kind of more of a one of selection or curation. And then, and then taking that and, and, uh, and, and iterating on, on tweaking that to get to, you know, some, some new space that you might not have considered otherwise. When you make changes in the code, as I understand it, you know, usually more or less kind of what's going to happen. Do you always know exactly what the result is going to be, or is it sometimes surprising what the output looks like based on changes that you make in the code that you've written? Um, so it can go, it can go either way, right? And and um, most generative artists will tell you um, that, uh, that the reason, the motivation for for working this way is because of the exploratory nature and the opportunity for a surprise. And so sometimes you want things to be, you know, you, you don't. You might have an idea generally of where you're going, but you don't end up there at all. You end up in somewhere like way off the beaten path, which is fine, right? And so, um, uh, your your question was kind of like between these things of like control and randomness, right? And um, uh, both both are good. Like, there's once I find after the, doing this exploratory journey for like you know if, when you're dialing into the very final result. Then maybe you're looking for something specific, and you'll you're 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 iterating on 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 uh, on constraining the parameters to 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 uh, uh, to achieve that result. But like along that path, uh, there's there's a huge amount of serendipity and and randomness involved, and that's that's a big motivation, uh, I think, for for the generative art process. With respect to the aesthetics of your work, I see reflections of the work you're doing now in some of the stuff that you were talking about in your paper 10 years ago. It also reminds me a lot in a lot of ways of abstracted, often computer assisted or generated art, especially audiovisual art, experimental film art that I've seen from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. A lot of those artists were working kind of in a very kind of hands-on code-oriented kind of way. Was that a kind of way of working that was interesting to you in thinking about developing the aesthetics of your own practice? Sure. I think there's two questions there, right? I'll talk about one part and then, uh, and then I'll talk about the other. So yes, the, the system that, that, uh, that I developed for fluid simulation 
it was about 10 years ago that I developed and published that at SIGGRAPH. That, that features in, in, uh, in the fifth series that, uh, that I did, the Advection series. And, and so that, 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 uh, that system is very, it's kind of like a personal, has like a personal, uh, like meaning to me because I spent two years of my life, uh, developing it. And it didn't have, there were, there were unique things about that system within, within the, uh, the literature of computer graphics about fluid simulation. It had, it had, uh, unique, uh, trade offs, but it wasn't, it wasn't like perfect for a for an industry uh, an industry setting, like it might not be used like in a feature film, for example. For example, the trade offs were not for, for not for that. There's some you know there's some there's some more heavyweight kind of not as elegant but useful methods of of uh, simulating uh, those natural phenomena for for use in blockbuster films. Um, but there was something that that uh, that was was very simple and elegant. And it, it was true to the process. It was true to like how, how I conceive of there, there was, there was an elegance to it that, uh, that attracted me. And I only wanted to do that. And that was part of why I left the, the PhD program because I didn't want to push it outside of that. And so I was, I was very pleased to be able to, to use that in, in, uh, um, in a generative art context as part of, uh, as part of this series. Okay. So the second part of your question was about. About the methods of, of how, how, uh, how, how people used to do code computer graphics like long ago. And yes, the, the, that, w- that was an inspiration, particularly, uh, so Max Matthews, who, uh, who worked at Bell Labs in the 19, um, well, I guess it would have been sixties and seventies. And so he was working on, on speech synthesis and a speech was a huge thing, obviously for, you know, telecommunications and being able to compress voice signals and, and synthesize uh, speech, but as part of that, you know, kind of in his in his in his spare time, they had a lot of leeway at Bell Labs. Um, he developed uh, uh, the first music programming language, right? So it was specifically for that. And the way that it would have been worked back then, it would have been the same thing. It's not real time. You have to you have to develop it in advance, and who knows how long you have to take for, to allow that synthesis to occur, and then to go back and to and to iterate on that. It was a slow process. The same thing with with computer graphics as well. Um, Larry Cuba was an inspiration for me as well, and so his his uh, abstract uh, visual work, um, digital visual work that he that he was coding. The process to do those things it takes a long time. It took him years to make those uh, to make those animations, and so uh, yeah, no, that 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 definitely plays in animation in general. Uh, is stop motion animation is is. Uh, um, is something that's informed my work. Like I, I have s- something about, I'm drawn towards the ascetic, uh, kind of hermetic, slow, tedious processes that, that come up the way the, the workflows that, uh, often by e- either like one or maybe a small group of people and taking years to, to make a stop motion animation and just having that concentrated energy. It, it, it's, it's part of the work. When, when someone sees the work and they know about how it was made, then I think that it makes it much more powerful. When I watch a Bruce Bickford animation, who was a an stop motion animator that worked with Frank Zappa, to, to think of how long it took him just from, you know, singular concentration to make, make those animations and then watch them and knowing that there was no other way that that animation could be produced, right? You could not produce that animation um, in, 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 in any, any other way. The only way you can do it is to have one person spend <laughs> five years of their life doing that so that we can watch a 30 minute animation. And that, that's something that makes it unique and special. And so that, that, that does, that does inform my process. Can you talk about kind of discovering crypto, the blockchain and NFTs and eventually seeing those as uh, appropriate medium for the kind of work that you were doing? Was it immediately obvious to you that this was a kind of, interesting space or did it take a while for you to see it as a place you wanted to be uh working in sure so i i actually came to ethereum and nfts like fairly recently it was only in february of of last year and so prior to that i'd been i'd been doing this audiovisual art project just on my own uh posting sometimes on instagram um like really just for my for my own purposes and and then people on Instagram, I think it was just before, maybe in December prior, uh, said, "Hey, you should check out. You know, you should probably check out NFTs. I think that you know the style of what you're doing, it could be well received." And I looked into it a bit, but you know, it was I, I dismissed it. 
And it wasn't until uh, February of that year that I saw I saw some generative artists that were beginning to get traction, and in particular, the Artblocks platform, which really made me understand kind of this unique intersection of of uh, generative art with with blockchain technology, because it really is it's lightning in a bottle. Like this intersection of of uh, generative art as like you know compact systems that can that can produce artworks and uh, and having that that intersection with 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 blockchain uh, technology is is kind of a natural one it seems when you saw it when you saw it as a medium you wanted to work in what were the aspects that were most exciting to you and how did you adapt what you were doing to this new format uh, like i'd already been writing this like you know very basic self-contained compact code to produce audiovisual animations and it was separate at that point from blockchain and so coming into the space and then learning about the kind of the ethos and the culture about on-chainness and these themes of, of, of permanence and, uh, and, and trustlessness, right? Right. So people don't want to have rug pulls occur. They don't want, uh, well, maybe, I don't know if your audience understands rug pull, but, uh, you don't want to have to trust some centralized institution or, or, or artist so that the, the things that you, the assets that you have that you might somewhat how lose them in the future. Right. So there's this ethos and, and, uh, and culture about, about taking that to like extremes and, uh, generative art having, being able to generative art is unique in this space because the code is compact enough that, that it's cost effective enough to store that, that model directly on, directly on the Ethereum blockchain. Whereas you could not store, it would be too, it, it's not cost effective to store a rent, uh, any arbitrary media file. It's too large. But uh, generative art is this is a very special case that that model can be that, that that it can be stored. So I saw I saw the opportunity that is completely circumstantial that uh, the way that I was working had a natural fit, and so that that was what led me to to distributing uh, the audiovisual artworks that I've been doing as on-chain generative art. And then from there it advanced a bit. I started observing um, like more about the culture and about the um, the things that were happening and try to try to integrate some, try to push it a little bit further, integrate some conceptual parts to, to that as well, rather than just treating it as a storage medium, as a delivery mechanism, maybe making, you know, some type of comment or, or statement or, or, or exploring what else is possible with smart contracts and, and, and the themes and concepts of blockchain. Was the name Deaf Beef something you took when you started working in the NFT space or was it a term that you'd used previously? And also um, for listeners who might not be familiar with hexadecimal technology, what does it mean? Uh, sure. So, so Deaf Beef was, it, it predates my, my knowledge of, of blockchain. Uh, so b- before I discovered Ethereum in February, I had been doing this audiovisual practice and I'd started sort of building a brand. Uh, my, my eventual goal was maybe to release a record or have, you know, some type of body of work. And so I wanted to brand it somehow and, uh, and come up with a name for myself. And, uh, so this is, this is separate. This is separate from crypto, although it does have an interesting overlap that I can talk about. And so the way that I work, I'm, I'm working with low level computer code. And when you're doing that, you often are, you know, you're at, you're working with the machine and, uh, uh, which is in the binary number system. So the hexadecimal, uh, numbering system may be familiar to people in crypto because you see it all the time in your Ethereum addresses. And so there's 16 symbols rather than, rather than 10 in a base 10 system that we normally use. Um, so those are zero to nine and then A, B, C, D, uh, E, F. And so, uh, in computer call, in hacker culture, um, there's something called hex speak where you can make up words using only those symbols. And so there's a bunch of different, there's many different hex speak words, but one of the more, uh, well-known ones is dead beef. So D E A D B E E F. And so this is, this is known within, within, uh, um, if you're of a certain generation, then you'll, you'll know this word because it became a convention that, uh, that certain memory locations in a program that you were not using or shouldn't be written to. Uh, you would, uh, they, they would be automatically filled by the machine with, with that, with that, that value, right? So it's a number. And so if you were to do a hex dump, like when you're examining your program memory, then you can see visually right away, it says dead beef, right? And so you know, oh, well, I should not be writing there. And if you see that you've written there, you'll know right away. And the implication, it, me, it means that 
you'll crash your program and you will be dead meat. Okay. So it's, it's it, there's this funny kind of thing. Now, I didn't want to choose dead dead beef for my because that's been used countless times by by many, you know, hackers and I think there's uh I think there's like a music player system that has that um and so it's just uh, yeah, it would be indistinguishable. Um so I wanted some type of variation and somehow I, I came up with deaf beef because I was working with sound. Um and so I thought that had an association with sound and it sounds like it's absurd and makes people think when you hear that's like what what's what's that deaf beef and also no one had used it before and so I could register the domain name and uh, and and have some unique symbol that somebody could Google and find me and so it was interesting because I had all these things ready to go circumstantially when I discovered Ethereum and NFTs in February so I I kind of had I was uh, it, it it was ready like I came charging out of the gate only because of this kind of like really fortunate circumstance. It happened to overlap with the with with the hexadecimal numbering system that everybody's familiar with in crypto. And so people have often asked me if it's a crypto reference and it wasn't originally. But uh, but yeah, there is an overlap there. I mean, it struck me that there's an interesting parallel with what you're doing, putting your code on the blockchain in a place where my impression is it kind of isn't supposed to be. In a sense, like you're kind of using the blockchain in ways that it wasn't necessarily intended originally to work, which kind of resonates for me with the way you describe the kind of meaning of deaf beef in a, in a programming culture. Yeah, I get, I, I'd never really thought about it like that, but that's true, right? The, the kind of hiding things and storing information in, in, in hidden places where you know, it maybe not should be. And I, I haven't really considered that, but that, that kind of, uh, it also has some the banner image that I have for Deaf Beef, there, there is, there's, uh, there's a little bit of a kind of an aesthetic quality that maybe overlaps with graffiti, and um, I've often thought that it would be neat to have that uh, graffitied somewhere, and that might have some type of association with like you know storing information or, or or putting it where in a subversive way where it should not be. So yeah, that's an interesting point. When you initially started releasing your work as NFTs. How is it received and sort of how has its reception developed over time? I think I was I was very fortunate because the groundwork had already been laid for on-chain generative art, right? By, you know, autoglyphs from Larva Labs and, and art blocks, of course, right? So in a way, the reception of, 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 uh, of my work at, at the beginning was, was good because it was, it was standing on, you know, those shoulders. But it was it was it was different enough. But but I'm just saying that you know the, it it was well received at the beginning because because of that. How has that changed over time? I feel really fortunate and grateful that that my work has been well received, and it's been kind of a whirlwind of experiences. It's only been you know eight months or something, and uh, um, so I'm 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 really I'm really surprised and you know kind of in shock about about uh, about about its reception. I think that. Uh, Beyond beyond the uh, generative art on chain generative art aspect, um, I think part uh, partly the the interest in it has been from the things that I described previously about either conceptually using parts of the blockchain or or taking some things maybe one step further in terms of programmable media and having other users be able to interact with those with the, those generative art pieces. So it seems like you have a really engaged collector base. When you communicate with them or you hear from people about what they find exciting uh, and intriguing about your work, what kind of things do you find people reacting to and sort of what kind of response have you gotten from the people who are kind of your biggest fans? I think people like it for, for, uh, for, for, different, for different reasons. It's hard, it's hard to say that there's, there's one, one thing that, that, uh, that, or one theme that comes with like feedback from people that, that enjoy it. Like I try to, I try to include a lot of different kind of references, uh, in my work. And so there is, there is this thing tying it all together. And that's the process, right? I think people identify with, with the process before, before, uh, like all this, all this, all this stuff happened, like recently with all the attention about generative art, generative art has always been sort of a participatory activity and. There's a culture of of uh, of showing things and sharing things, and like my experience with uh, with with generative art always has been, uh, uh, well, people see it, or I see uh, generative art. It's not necessarily because, like, I like it. It's not necessarily that I want to buy it or hang it on my wall or do or 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 anything like that. But it's that I want to do it. 
And that's the same reactions. I think that's the biggest reaction that I get from, uh, from, from people is that they want to participate somehow in doing this because, because, because it is, it is, it's a, there's this motivation to explore, to tinker. Um, and so I think that there's maybe that theme is, is probably the strongest, the strongest theme that, that I would say that, that makes people interested in it because it's about, it's about how it's made and, and, uh, um, and for people that like to make things or to think about, to, to think about those processes, I think would be the strongest one. Uh, but people like it for, uh, people like it for other reasons as well. Uh, I think that maybe the aesthetic of it, there's some retro nostalgia for some of it. But not only that, I think it ca- casts a wide net. Um, there's people that are really, that, that like it just for very purely technical reasons. And, uh, there, there's people that like it, uh, because they're familiar maybe with, uh, um, with some of the aesthetics and how that made them feel when they were younger. And there's people that like the, the, the conceptual, uh, part of, of, of some of the work. I wouldn't call myself, uh, predominantly a conceptual artist. Uh, and so not all, of, not all of the work is conceptual. A lot of it is just aesthetic. Like this, uh, maybe the process is, is conceptual. But, uh, but, but, uh, it's just pure kind of, you know, ex- exploration of aesthetics and what looks, what, what, what looks nice or exploring the sublime or, and so, yeah, it, it, it varies quite a bit. I try to, I try to, I try to kind of mix a whole lot of things in there because that's what I like when I, the, the, the art and the things that I'm interested in always have like a lot of layers, um, and are kind of, you know, uh, draw you into sort of a, uh, like a world of, of different references. Like I love, I love Frank Zappa's music and also just like the way that everything uh, connects and you can really become part of that uh, kind of self-contained universe. One of your more recent pieces works with degeneration, with the piece degenerating every time it transfers. And I thought that was a really interesting conceptual move, sort of playing with the relationship between analog and digital technology, and also the idea of generative art in the first place. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what you saw the role of that move as being in in your work. Sure. So uh, so that series is called Entropy, and so for do it, maybe I'll describe it a bit. Um, and so this it's an audiovisual artwork, generative artwork, and what um, it's it's made to look like analog media, maybe recalling some references of of, uh, of old film. And when the when the NFT is transferred, it uh, there's there's a counter that's incremented in the in the smart contract, and that information is is fed to the generative process. And it tells it to degrade it in a sense. So it's an artificial degradation process that makes it look like the the same way that analog media might look when it's repeatedly copied, right? And it will progressively degrade um, over time. And so, how, how did I come to to doing that? Well, I knew from the start with like my generative art is about systems, and so it has inputs, and it has a model, and it has outputs. And the the paradigm of of, of generative art on the blockchain. Uh, has been about a single random input that, you know, gives you a unique uh, art piece. But I knew from the start, and many people like have, have been exploring this, the idea of programmable media. And so being able to have other inputs influence a model, right? Um, and so I was just circumstantially early in the space, um, but those things were were wide open to be explored. And so, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to experiment with uh, aspects of programmable media and that was uh, that was sort of a natural one. I'm not going to claim that that's like the, the idea of an artwork degrading is uh, is is a concept that's very that's very old, been been used many 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 times. Um, I think what makes it unique in in this case has to do with the the themes that are that are natural that that are specific to blockchain, right? Permanence and ownership, and so the 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 the, the culture, the idea of on chainness about things being permanent and being able to store, um, you know, your file or your, your NFT, the media for the NFT on a blockchain so that it will be available for your grandkids or, or, or something of that nature. Right. And about, and about having a permanent record of ownership. And so what makes it unique is, uh, this work unique is that it's specific to that, that process within this, within this thematic framework of, of blockchain. And I think it comments about, uh, about some of those things. I know that you recently had a piece featured at Sotheby's 
I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that happened and what the experience was like. Well, the way that the way that came about, my work is collected by a DAO uh, called Fingerprints DAO, and Fingerprints DAO is a, is an art is a, is a collect art collection DAO, and they have a specific curatorial mission about blockchain art that is that uses smart contracts in novel ways or or has has smart contracts in blockchain as 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 a conceptual piece. And so they were approached by uh, Sotheby's because Sotheby's was putting together th- their their section auction that was from collectors, right? So they went around to different NFT collectors and asked them to to consign a piece for auction. And so it was they 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 contacted many collectors, and one of them was a few of them I, I believe were DAOs. And so Fingerprints DAO was was contacted, and um, Fingerprints DAO did uh, we, we did it they did it a little bit differently. Instead, they didn't they didn't want to sell they didn't want to sell part of their collection because that has never been their intent they they intended to be a permanent collection and so they approached several of the artists uh, that had been collected with the dow and we were given the opportunity to consign um one of our own pieces that we still owned and so that was that was how that came to be i ended up consigning this series uh series four uh, glitch box generative art nft series and how it how it went i mean i'm i i, I can say this I, I, I'm, I'm learning about the art world, right? I don't know. I was not a professional artist before this. I never went to art school. I've never worked in the gallery system. I don't know any about a thing about this. And so it's, I'm playing, I'm playing catch up. It's been really interesting to learn uh, more about all of these things and I'm learning as I go along. And so, you know, uh, at first, you know, knowing that you're going to have a work auth- uh, uh, that's going to be auctioned at, uh, at, at, at uh, Sotheby's, I mean that that sounds that sounds incredible, right? Um, but talking, to, to learning more about it, and talking to many artists that uh, um, uh, that have been professional artists for a long time, it's not might not really be you know the the stamp of approval that that you think that it is to have your work auctioned, right? I mean, uh, I'm I'm happy to have had it auctioned at Sotheby's, but it's it's it, it might it might not be. What, uh, especially for people who are, 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 are in the crypto space or in the NFT space and, and don't, don't know about the wider, you know, art world and stuff, which is me, might not know. And we're coming to that realization that maybe it's like, I don't want to say bad things about it, but, but, but it's, uh, it, it, it's, 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 it's not, it's not exactly what, what you might think it, it, uh, it means. So I will say that. In, in what ways? Well, I mean, there's the, is it a, basically is it is it is it a stamp of approval? Is it something that legitimizes work? Right? Is it something that legitimizes something as an artwork? And I would say that I would say probably that that uh, that no, compared to some other things, it's not the stamp that legitimizes an artwork. There are many things that are sold at Sotheby's and auction houses, and it, it it's not really based on on uh, on the uh, on. The, you know, it's not like uh, it's not like a curated exhibition, right? Like if you compare it to like a curated exhibition or a museum acquisition, that's much much different. Auction houses are in the business of auctioning, right? And they don't only auction art; they auction other things as well. And so, and there there's also uh, implications about you know uh, selling your work to the to the highest bidder uh, might not be the best strategy either. Right. Um, if your if your goal is to have your your work uh, be in, uh, you know, uh, you want to have good collectors. Right. And so uh, good collectors that will act as stewards for your work. Um, and so uh, simply simply having it auctioned to the highest bidder, uh, it's not it, it, it might not it might not be it might not be the direction that you always want to go. So I guess like. Uh, my takeaway from from this experience is that it was kind of it was a learning experience. And I mean, I, I can't really, you know, I'm not going to cry about it either, because I mean, like, it's weird for me to be saying these things, because I, I auctioned a piece of my work for like a substantial amount of money. And like to ask me last year, that if anything, like for these things to happen just feels crazy. But I also have to be truthful about like, and honest about how I'm how what I'm learning and how, you know, these these different things that are happening. So I, I feel like I, I just, I got to say it. So, <laughs> Well, so I'm really interested in that, you know, the things you've learned in the course of the last really kind of dramatic year of, of changes, you know, how has that affected the way you think about 
the work that you're making, about the way you present it to the world, about how you hope people see it and understand it, and what you kind of hope to do going forward, sort of how you hope to present your work in the future? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good question. So yes, a lot has happened all at once. And, you know, I was doing this before without any kind of intention of any monetary gain at all. Like it was, it was, it was just an activity for me. I took it seriously, but it was not, it was not to be able to sell it. I wanted to share it. Right. That was, uh, that was the one thing. So the exposure that, that, uh, that I seem to have instantly got through being circumstantially present at this, you know, up this time of upheaval, um, and being, and, and being able to, uh, to have that exposure is, 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 uh, is amazing. And the, the networks that, that I've built and the other artists that I've met, but it's funny because, I mean, I was posting this stuff to Instagram last year and I have a Bandcamp page with these things on it. And the other day, like someone paid me $5, uh, on Bandcamp. Right. So it's, it's just, it's really surprising to me the amount of attention that, uh, that, that you will get because of a, basically because of like a news headline about a price, right? Like that, that amount of attention that you, that you can get from that is uh is like revelatory and it speaks to something now how this is going to play out in the future like i'm very happy for this this experience i don't have any expectations about you know like where it goes i'm 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 kind of learning as i go along i want to be able to continue to make work to have to give myself the opportunity and the time to have the same type of workflow that i did have uh before because paradoxically, I have less time to work to to work on art than I did at this time last year, um, even with even with, you know, uh, even with the success that, that I've encountered. Um, and so I want what I want is to be able to get back to a to an art practice and, and, and guide it based on that. And whatever happens like in the market, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not really going to let that sort of influence uh, how I work in the moving forward. Could you say a little something about your first NFTs project? Because it seems to me that a lot of those pieces and that project as a whole reflects a kind of interesting perspective on thinking about engaging in a market as it's developing and thinking about what it is, what it could be, and what other people are doing with it. Right. Okay. So uh, I'm not sure if people heard about, uh, uh, you said the first NFT. So what this is, is it's actually the title of an NFT collection that I made in September and it's called Firsts. Okay. And so this collection is a, it's a collection of generative texts, uh, 5,000, um, generative texts that are generated within the smart contract. So it's kind of self-contained and it produces, um, a random sentence through a random collection of, uh, pre-written snippets. So you can think of it like Mad Libs and it it commemorates and ridicules many aspects of NFT crypto culture circa September 2021, and so um, that includes the overplayed notion of an of an NFT being first at something in a very specific category, or how how different players try to use that narrative to uh, thinly justify the the importance of something in order to cement um, their investments um, or their status. Uh, so. If you, I can, do you want, maybe I'll read a few of them. I have a few of them here just to read so people can get a flavor of it, right? So this is what your NFT would be. It's a, just a, just a, um, uh, it's just a sentence on a black background. The first user curated generative mathematical smell vision NFT on Binance Smart Chain to be sold at Christie's. Okay. Next one. The first deflationary Windows 95 screensaver NFT on Ethereum deemed culturally significant by a DAO vote. Three, the first techno-utopian dick pic NFT deemed a historical artifact by the SEC. The first pixel art NFT to run a four-minute mile. The first edible conceptual art NFT to complete a transatlantic flight. Um, the first female AI chatbot NFT deemed to be MoMA material by the Crypto Nouveau Riche. Okay, so that that kind of like just through example, you can get sort of an idea. The thing that ties it together is the uh, uh, the satire of, of 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 things being first and trying to trying to use that to. I mean, it's legitimate. We want to know what was first, maybe for historical purposes and. And for that, um, you know, that discourse, that's important, especially if it's important categories. 
But the the part that's funny is is uh, and 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 I think uh, deserves to be ridiculed is you know trying to be first in a very specific category and only for you know for 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 trying to justify the importance of it like sort of sort of arbitrarily and trying to construct some type of status or or commodity value based on that and also having these narratives pu- pushed by different people or institutions um, that that um, that kind of make fun of right like my list of institutions or people are like the things that I said the SEC the Vatican right uh, a crypto bro um, a DAO and like the uh, uh, like what can we take at face value of of what's being said in headlines or in twi- uh, in Twitter threads uh, and about uh, the intentions of, of of some of these things so that's that's where it came from in, in closing Tyler I, I mean clearly your work is not well calculated in the bad sense it's very calculated in a sense I like a whole lot and is stemming from you know a kind of experimentation that you were doing long before people started really paying attention which I'm glad they did but uh, based on that like based on what you've done so far based on kind of your perspective on kind of this new market, this new interest in your work that's developed and sort of what you're interested in. Like, where do you hope to go next? Where are your plans for your work in the future? What kind of stuff do you want to be doing? And, you know, what do you hope people are looking for? Um, yeah, also a good question. So I don't, uh, like, beyond, like, like I'm strongly drawn to working in the way that I do, like, with with generative art, specifically with systems and models and with, uh, you know, some type of commentary and maybe concepts about blockchain. But in terms of like long-term plans, it's 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 just too hard to make long-term plans. Uh, like I mean, just with the speed that that everything has happened, and also with the great uncertainty about about many things, about what will happen either with the market or or with 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 so many things. So I'm not I'm not really making any long-term plans. My 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 goal is to uh, is to uh, like I'm I'm trying to as much as possible. I need time to stop so that I can catch up and read and learn and observe. That's what I would uh, like. I like I have a strong desire to do. So as much as I can, like I'm, I'm trying to observe as much as possible and just just keep my eyes open, my ears open, and and see what's happening. And then you know, may, I, I'm sure that out of that something, I'll draw some inspiration from somewhere and find a way to 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 work that into some type of of art statement or or something. And I don't know how long it will take. Because I mean that, that's that's the thing. It's a funny uh, um, like within there's a sense of urgency within the NFT uh, market because nobody knows how long this is going to last, right? And so and also like you know you can you can the cycles of attention are, are quite short, and uh, and so if you're not constantly producing work, um, like what happens to you, right? And so I I I have to slow down. I can't I can't keep up, and so. I'm just going to observe and we'll see what we'll see what happens. And if it takes, you know, if it takes a year, um, then then it takes a year. Right. But uh, yeah, I'm just I'm in that mode right now that I feel like basically that I've been parachuted into new territory and I'm like orienteering, like I'm trying to figure out my bearings and find out what is happening, learning like like all like about everything. Right. It's just and so it's a it's a it's a it's an adventure. It's a, it's a, it's a great wild ride of an experience. Um, but I also don't hold any expectations one way or the other. And I'll just continue to, to do what I've been doing. Amazing. I think a lot of people feel the same way and it's great to see someone so clear eyed about that aspect of what's taking place. So Tyler, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and learn more about your art and about your artistic practice. I'm a big fan and uh, I look forward to your next project, whether it takes a week, a month or a year or more. Thanks so much, Brian. Really had a great time chatting with you. Give me your attention. This is the Signal Core Code Aptitude Test. In this test, you will hear long and short sounds. This is a short sound. This is a series of short sounds. 
This is a long sound. This is a series of long sounds. Several long and short sounds sent together make a group. Here is a group. Here is another group. When this test starts, you will hear two groups of long and short sounds. The groups will be sent in the following order. First group, then a pause, and then the second group. You will indicate on the test paper whether or not the second group sounds exactly like the first. If the second group does sound exactly like the first, underline yes. If the second group does not sound exactly like the first, underline no. For example, those two groups sounded exactly alike. Therefore, yes would be underlined if they were sent in the test. Take this example. Those two groups were not exactly alike. Therefore, no would be underlined if they were sent in the test. Take your pencils. In the spaces marked practice on the first page of the test paper, Indicate whether the groups that you hear are exactly alike or are different. Attention. First practice pair. Those two groups were alike. Therefore, you should have underlined the word yes. Second practice pair. The second group of sounds was different from the first. You should have underlined the word no. Third practice pair. Those two groups were alike. Therefore, you should have underlined the word yes. Fourth practice pair. The second group of sounds was different from the first. You should have underlined the word no. The number of each pair of groups will be called before sending the group. For example, first pair, second pair, and so forth. If you miss a pair, go to the next pair when its number is called. Turn the page of your test paper.